Here's the thing though. Welcome to another episode of our podcast, Here's the Thing Though. My name is Saliha and I'm your host for today and I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Hello. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal and Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people past, present and future and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. So, Mitch, how are you? How's it going? I'm well, thank you. Yeah, things are going okay. Uh, I'm back to, to work and my retail job, so that's all right, I guess. But things are, you know, I feel like I by the end of, you know, the 15 weeks, got into a good rhythm. Like, this was just life, and then now everything's so overwhelming all over again. Mm, I totally understand. I feel like I finally adjusted. And then now I need to add, you know, five other things into my daily schedule and into... To navigate through my week. But I think it's all for the best. What about you? Yeah, pretty similar. I mean, like, life is still exactly the same. I'm still working the same hours. I feel like I've lost all understanding of time. Because every day is the same in some ways with, like, work and, like, not leaving my house. I feel like pre-lockdown, I had, like, a good routine, which is why it felt like, yes, the week ends and it starts and it ends and it starts. Because, like, you'd go out on your weekend and do stuff. Every day is the same. I'm like excited for change, I guess, with lockdown, I guess, kind of half ending, mostly ending this week, but I'm nervous about it and I haven't really made any plans. So (laughs) I'm okay. I am okay. Things are just meh. I'm scared about re-entering social situations. You know what I mean? I feel like I don't know if I've lost all of my social functionality. Like, look look at the way I'm even talking. Social functionality. I'm like a robot. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be difficult. But I'm keen to see everyone. And uh, keen to go to the movies. That's what I miss most. Going to see a movie in a cinema. That's all I really want. I swear, like, the entire lockdown, I was like, I just want lockdown to end so I can invite friends over. And now lockdown has ended and I'm like, damn... I only know like three people. <laughs> like who am who, what did I think was going to happen? I fully had envisioned all this partying and now I'm like wait, I have like five friends. We'll have some parties. Don't <laughs> we'll worry. have some five people parties. But anyway, let's move into some follow-up for this week. We just want to let you guys know that we will be talking about male violence against women and police violence in this episode today. So just a trigger warning for domestic violence and the murder of women. So, obviously, the first thing which you've already briefly talked about is the New South Wales lockdown kind of ending this week. A bunch of restrictions have eased. We're now allowed to have people over, weddings and funerals are back on, shopping centres have opened, we can go out to brunch and dinner, movies, I believe, are opening as well. So, there's, there's a lot happening. But I briefly wanted to talk about that because Gladys Berejiklian resigned a couple of weeks ago, I think. I think she resigned on the 1st of October and it's, what's the date today? The 11th or yeah. 12th. Well, there you go. Yeah. About two weeks ago. Um, and the new New South Wales premiere is Dominic, I think it's Perote. I swear I was saying Perote because I didn't bother Googling it. And then my boss said Perote and I was like, oh my God, I've become one of those people that just mispronounces somebody's name. That's, it's me now. <laughs> I don't care though, because I don't like him. But anyway, so this guy is a very religious man and very conservative and he's pro-Trump 
and he voted against decriminalizing abortion or um, seems like a bit of a shitbag. And then he changed some of the New South Wales roadmap, basically sped it up a little bit. So initially we were only going to be allowed five guests uh, at 70% and now we're allowed 10. So he's doubled the guests uh, for households. He's also doubled the guests from weddings from like 50 to 100. They're not huge changes, but they are somewhat significant. Like doubling might not seem a lot when it's five to 10, but I feel like that can make a difference. He's kind of already started on the wrong foot as Premier. Initially, like, it's already come out that apparently um, Dr. Kerry Chan, who is the chief health officer of New South Wales, like, apparently didn't endorse these changes and no health officials have been present at any of his presses and there's been no sign language interpreters at his presses either and it just, like, immediately lost, like, every minority. (laughs) There's no women, there's no, like, health officials and there's no Auslan interpreters. What the fuck is going on? And then like on Monday, he was at a pub and was having a beer to sell, you know, as like a PR thing to celebrate the end of lockdown or whatever. And he's like standing in the pub, which is actually against health restrictions. I don't know. There's just everything is going wrong for this man already, which is something that we foresaw because, ew. But it is one to keep an eye on because I'm actually a bit scared about him being yeah, in power. Yeah, it's definitely concerning. We can laugh about it, but it is kind of fucked and it's probably going to get worse. What does the premier actually do? I feel like before COVID, it, it didn't seem so significant. Dude, I didn't know who any of our politicians were a couple of years ago. Exactly. COVID has just brought them all into the limelight. Yeah, now I know like all their names. I probably recognize them on the street, which is big for me. Yeah, that's true. Hopefully after COVID settles, we don't really have to hear this guy's <laughs> name much. That's ideal. Yeah, I'm a bit concerned, but I guess we'll see. But I guess the reason I wanted to bring that up was um, let's all keep an eye on Dominic over here because I'm worried that he's going to do some fucked up shit. Anyway, other better news. Britney's father has officially been booted from the conservatorship. Yay. Yay. And her conservatorship as a whole still exists, but it's possible that it could be terminated on the November 12th hearing. So I guess we'll see. I'm not sure if she's pushing for it to be terminated or not, but I know that she's already said a lot of pretty angry things about her family. She is going off and honestly, she's living her best life. I'm very happy for her. We mentioned last episode that there was a new documentary about Britney. Again, on Netflix, the Netflix one. I started it. Literally got like maybe 10 minutes in, could not give a fuck and turned it off. It's boring. Sorry, guys. I know there was a lot of excitement, including for me. I feel like I hyped it up a little bit, but I barely watched it because I was like, what? Why does this exist? I feel like I'm not learning anything new. I didn't watch the whole thing because it was too boring. Yeah. Well, is this the end of the the Britney saga? Potentially. Potentially. I mean, I honestly hope so. I just want people to leave her alone. I just want her to live her life. It is getting very exploitative, as I mentioned already in previous episodes. And I just feel like everybody just wants to report on it because it's a good story and we'll all click on it. And I just kind of want it to end so she can just like go about her life and not be hounded by the press 24-7. When is the Britney biopic coming? Who will play (laughs) Britney? Honestly, I'd be surprised if there isn't one in the works already. I am sure there is. Anyway, next point in follow-up that I want to talk about was Sarah Everard, or I guess the case of Sarah Everard. Just a quick recap for those of you who aren't on top of that. So Sarah Everard went missing in the UK in South London off the streets, and then her body was found in a forest a week later, and they ended up finding the guy who kidnapped and murdered her. And it was a police officer named Wayne Cousins. And he pleaded guilty. He admitted to everything. The court has given him a life sentence. And this saga is, I guess, finally over. But the reason I'm bringing it up 
is because I just don't think there's enough of a public conversation around the fact that this man was a police officer. Sarah Everard's murder has sparked a lot of conversations around domestic violence and violence against women that's perpetuated by men and the way that society undermines and ignores women's pain and violence and the fact that, you know, women die every day at the hands of men and that we really need to talk about this. And all of those things are true, but I just don't think there is enough of a conversation around the fact that he is a police officer, which I think immediately changes the narrative here, especially because it was revealed in his court case, this most recent one, that he actually arrested her. That's how he kidnapped her. He arrested her falsely. He told her that she had breached COVID rules, arrested her and put her in his vehicle. That's what he did. That's how he got to her. And I just think it's really fucking upsetting because how are we ever going to fight against that? You know, women are always told ways that we can be safer on the streets. Don't walk alone. Don't do this. Don't do that. But like, what the fuck are you supposed to do when a cop arrests you? Resist arrest and then risk being like tasered and like or shot or whatever, depending on which country you're in. And I mean, that's what some conversations are happening around. Like, that's what some people are saying, because uh, one of the police commissioners in London said that Sarah Everard should have known her rights. She should have known what she can and can't be arrested for. And she should have resisted arrest. As if like... What the fuck? I know. Aside from the obvious victim blaming, there's also just like, are you really telling us to resist arrest now? Knowing what happens to people that resist arrest, how is that going to make you safer? People of color die for resisting arrest. Black people die for that. <laughs> like, it's just such a stupid fucking, like, point to Like, instead of being like, oh, like, we clearly need to do some introspection and some investigations in the police force because this man who was, like, nicknamed the rapist by his colleagues was able to kidnap and murder this woman. And his colleagues, by the way, like, gave him a character reference in court even after he admitted to doing all the things he did to her. Like, this is clearly a fucking policing problem. It's not a woman problem. It's not It's not a citizen's problem to not know their rights. It's like, this is, I mean, obviously we're ACAB and obviously this is why we don't believe in reform because it's not fucking possible. But like, just the fact that even in like such a brutal instance as this one, when like things so obviously have gone wrong, where there's really no defense for him, like that man is a monster and he's admitted to everything. And the police commissioner is still being like, well, it's not really what we've done. Clearly you guys need to just not get arrested. Like, it's just, I don't know, just makes me angry. And I needed to bring it up because I think it just really shows how fucked this all is. Yeah, I mean, it's a really serious issue just, I mean, firstly, so many cops don't know the rules and the rights of the people they're arresting. And then secondly, a lot of these cops just don't care. Even in Australia, in, I mean, a far less extreme example than what happened to Sarah Everett, uh, just the constant strip searches Mm. that happen. Like, firstly, often they'll ask you to do stuff, for example, like the squatting cough, which they're legally not allowed to do. Yeah, they can't ask you to do that. Yeah, they can't do what is considered a cavity search without the presence of a doctor. And then secondly, how you meant to say no to someone that holds a fucking gun? Like that is just a threat. Holding a gun and roaming the street and telling you to get naked is a threat. But also just like with strip searching, because I remember back when, um, lol, when music festivals were a thing, but there was an issue because cops were strip searching people at Central Station in Sydney. So they had like the sniffer dogs. And then if a dog sat down and it was you, it didn't matter who you were or what you, they were just doing random strip searches, like randomly strip searching people. But it just fucked and feels like a complete violation of like every right that we have. But I was really paranoid because I worked in the city and I was going to the city all the time. So I was reading about like strip searching and what I should do because I don't want to fucking get strip searched by cops. You don't want to get 
whether it's essentially sexually assaulted because a dude holding a gun is telling you to take to your get clothes naked. off. Yeah, it's fucked. Um, and so I was reading about it and all that I was found out was just like, yeah, so you cannot consent. So you can say, I do not consent to being strip searched, but you still must do it though. What does that mean? Like, what what does it matter if I say I don't consent or if I still have to like partake? And it says, if you choose not to be strip searched, then they will take you to the police station and you'll get strip searched there. So either way, I'll get strip searched. Like if they decide to strip search me, there is nothing I can do to stop that. Because if I resist, I'll get arrested for like hindering their movement. Like what? You know, it's just they have so much power and there's just nothing you can do about it. So it just really angers me when they're like, oh, just like don't get arrested. As if people have a fucking choice, especially like in Australia, you know, it is really reminiscent of strip searches because a lot of these dogs are fucking wrong. They'll just sit and then they'll be like, even if I don't find any drugs on you, that's it, strip search, yeah. cough and whatever. And it's just like, it's fucked. And as if we have a choice, as if Sarah Everett had a choice in this. Scenario. Right? Like what? She was said no. And then he just would have been like, oh, I'm so sorry. And walked away. Like what mm. do we think? Anyway, it's just, it's fucking ridiculous. And I just really want to bring that up. because I think we need to have more vigorous and angry conversations about the policing in this instance, because this isn't just a male violence issue. This is an ACAB issue. Anyway, I will introduce today's topic today. That's it for follow up? Yes. Wow. That's Short probably the shortest, most succinct follow up. We've had in a while. Yeah. I do like the long like, follow Honestly, I'm convinced that there's a few things I've probably forgotten, but I feel like those are the ones that have been keeping me up at night. So we've talked about those. Awesome. Today, we're going to talk about brands and activism. These days, most brands need to have like a social cause that they champion if they want to keep up with consumer demands and if they want an audience to actually buy their products and like be loyal to them. You know, things like Nike and feminism or Lyft and abortion rights. Every company has to take a stand against at least one social issue, lest they become irrelevant. But how many of these examples of brands taking over an activism issue are genuinely sincere attempts to create change? And how many of them are just PR opportunities? And does it matter? doesn't matter if they are just PR opportunities, if they are creating some kind of change. We're going to discuss some recent examples of brand activism today and how they impact the meaning of activism and change. And we're going to kind of just have more of a conversation. This is less of a lesson. We're not like trying to teach you guys something. I think lately there's just been a few stories in the media that have kind of triggered a gut reaction between Mitch and I. We kind of just want to talk our way through it and like figure out why we feel this way about these things. Yeah, hopefully by the end of this, we'll have a clearer idea of what we think ourselves. Yeah, because I don't think we're going in here with like strong convictions. It's just we've had a few thoughts floating around and I feel like it would make a good episode to discuss them because I think a lot of other people, a lot of our listeners probably have had similar feelings on these issues as well. So let's get into it. We're going to start this discussion with just some recap of a news story that I think has kind of sparked this conversation between us. So Nicholas Drummond, who was 20 years old at the time, went on a night out with some friends in northern Sydney. At some point, he saw a girl that he didn't know and he yelled at her that she was a slut and told her to put her tits away. They kind of went their separate ways throughout the night and then they had another altercation later when she asked for an apology and he refused to give her one. He ended up coward punching the girl's male friend and then punching her in the face. And a couple of weeks ago, a judge erased his convictions of assault 
and said that the woman's outfit could have been seen as provocative by Nicholas Drummond because he's a former Knox student. Obviously, that story is really infuriating for a lot of reasons. The first one being that a guy actually punched a woman in the face and said all those things to her. And secondly, that a judge not only victim blamed the woman in question, but then went on to defend Nicholas's behavior as something that is understandable given his upbringing and the school that he went to. Like it's fair that he would feel upset and provoked by that woman's clothing, which by the way, not that it matters, but she wasn't wearing anything like particularly revealing. And it does that, not that that even fucking matters, but that's the saddest part. She's probably dressed how like many of us dress. The reason we're talking about Nicholas Drummond and this story is because of the conversations that it sparked in the media. Obviously there was immediate outrage from people reading the judge's comments, which are pretty horrific. And the woman in question also commented saying that she was deeply disappointed by this and that she felt victim blamed. There's been a lot of comments from domestic violence advocates and women's rights advocates saying how this is just another fucking example of how deeply entrenched misogyny is. It's like, this is, it became a moment, I think. I mean, this stuff happens every day, but this story in particular really became a moment given Chanel Contos's lobbying and activism around like discussing sex education in private schools and the way that boys' private schools in Australia and particularly in Sydney are nasty. Okay, so the reason we're telling you about that is because part of the public response to this was uh, billboards put up by a company called Ovira. So Avira is a company, they're a women's startup that have created a product to help lessen period pain. And they also have other like period related products, but they're like a women's health company. So they put up a billboard outside Knox Grammar that said, you will not silence our pain. It's a mobile billboard. So it moved around the city and also was in front of the Downing Court that the judge made his comments in. So the billboard just like a peach color. It says in the middle in white writing, you will not silence our pain. And the bottom right corner, it says Ovira, like the logo. So that was reported pretty widely in the media. And everybody was like, strong, scathing billboard appears in front of Knox Grammar after student punches woman or whatever. And like, this like was in the media for like days. And then after that, Ovira put up four more billboards, mobile billboards around the city that had quotes from the judge in question. So they said... Thank your lucky stars. He's had an unhappy year. Her dress may have been perceived as provocative and good luck with the coaching, which are all things that the judge said in the court case. These billboards had a link on the bottom of them that took viewers to a crowdfunding page to raise money for advocates and activist groups that either provide care or support or funding for domestic violence victims. These billboards I find very interesting. And I, I felt weird about them from the first moment I saw the first billboard. I came across it initially through a press release from Ovira. And I was quite surprised when I was reading about it. It was, to me, a little bit strange. Like, it was, like, fine. Like, there's nothing wrong with putting a billboard up. But it was just, like, a little bit weird, personally, because it wasn't initially clear whether the victims were involved in this or like if it was just a company that was commercializing an assault case. Like my initial response was like, oh, that's a bit ick. It's just some weird like corporate co-option of an issue. Like that was my like 
knee-jerk reaction. And then they put up the second batch of billboards and I was like, maybe this is like fine because they've got like a link to a crowdfunding company and like clearly people are donating to it and like everybody is talking about this. Like it's literally everywhere. It's all these headlines are like, Ovira sparks conversation with their billboards. Yeah, and exclusively positive feedback as well. Yeah, like like I'm mostly seeing like really positive, supportive comments and I'm like, you know what? Like maybe I'm just like really cynical because something about this doesn't feel right to me like this feels less about the issue and more like a really great opportunity for promotional work that also bonuses as legitimately helping some people right it felt opportunistic to me and I didn't like it what were your thoughts when you initially came across it Mitch when I first came across that because I was with you uh, when I came across it it wasn't through the news stories because I don't think it was a big thing then, but it was when the the emails were being spread out to, you know, certain news outlets about, uh, look what we've done. There's all this activism doing great work in regards to this awful case uh, that has been making waves in the news. And I think when it comes to this stuff, I'm always just extremely skeptical of brand activism, even when maybe I shouldn't be. It's like, I'm always on mm. the, the defensive, I guess. Me too. Um, I'm never really like you have, it's- I think it's not good and you have to prove to me. It's definitely guilty until proven innocent. Exactly. Yeah, I'm completely the same. Uh, And I'm just skeptical of when activism in this way is treated like a PR activity and uses the same channels and uh, strategies and techniques that a brand would. And I don't know which this is serving more, whether it's serving the brand more or the cause more. And if it even really matters, if it is apparently making a real positive, legitimate impact. That's definitely the self-gaslight that I end up doing when I feel like icky about some brand activism. And then I'm like, but like if they did raise money for this thing, doesn't matter if it was insincere, like maybe I just should take what I can get and like just maybe I need to fucking relax, which I'm still like not fully 1000% sure where I stand, but I know that I undermine my own gut reactions with arguments like that. But I think, like, the key thing about why the Ovira billboard, at least the initial one, because I was... I think I came around a little bit more with the second batch of billboards than the first, because the first billboard just says, you will not silence our pain, and then it has the Ovira logo on it. And I just, like, initially didn't like that because it immediately centred the company rather than the issue it wasn't immediately clear what that was even for unless you read the press release. And it didn't feel like one of those really interesting anonymous stunts that makes you think. It's like, it felt like an ad, especially because they like literally create products to help ease period pain. And they are like very geared towards women or people with uteruses, right? And so it just like immediately felt like an ad to me. And then I immediately hated that because I hate ads. And then the second billboards came around, which don't have the Ovira logo on them. And instead they have a link to a fundraiser, which Ovira donated $15,000 to. And I think they were aiming to raise like 50,000 or whatever. Well, the domain name is, I think, thank you, lucky stars. Which is uh, a quote from the judge. But then it takes you to an Ovira webpage. To donate money. Yeah, with the brand logos everywhere. Yeah, and they're like in partnership with several uh, organizations for like victims of domestic violence and like rape services. And I just like- I think the reason the first one at least is like icky is because to me, it immediately commercializes this issue. 
Like it didn't go up there with the name. It didn't have the name of the judge on it. Like it didn't point towards the issue at all. For somebody just walking past who didn't know what this is about, it was an ad. And it only really had context if you read the press release or if you read an article reporting on it. And that like immediately felt disingenuous to me because if you looked at that, you wouldn't Google the quote, you'd Google Ovira. You know, I think that's a really good point that I didn't even realize. I wasn't even thinking about someone walking past this billboard and it, w- it wouldn't make sense if you walk past this billboard and you saw, especially the first one, which is you will not silence us. And then Ovira in the corner, you're like, what the fuck is that trying to sell me? Like, And I would Google Ovira. I wouldn't Google the quote. No. I would Google Ovira because I'm like, what is this company? What is this group? I mean, what are I they trying to Google say? I wouldn't Google anything because it's not saying anything. You know? Yeah, the, that's the, true. It's, it's only like... That the protest, if we're going to call this an act of protest, the protest only takes place within the media sphere because mm. it's only when you read an article about it that you can actually make sense of the context. Yeah. And the thing about that, which feels disingenuous for me, is that it doesn't really alienate anybody. Like it already kind of, it is only meaningful to people that already care about this. And it's only going to resonate with people that already are familiar with this issue and care about it and know who Ovira is. Like, it just seems so, like, specific. It just seems like it's very specifically for the consumers they already have. Either that or they're, like, going to pull in people into their website that are already kind of interested or, like, leaning towards this thing. And it's just like, yeah, it's just it felt like more of an ad for a company than it did for, like, political commentary. It just felt like performative, like it was for sales. And like, I do want to point out that I don't think that's a reflection of like the morals of whoever came up with that idea in the company or the company founder. Like, I don't think they're like evil and just trying to cash in on this issue. I really don't. But I just think that like that's that was how it felt seeing it. And that is undeniably probably the effect that the first billboard had, whether or not the intentions were sincere. And then... We get to the second batch of four billboards with all the quotes and then the crowdfunding source. And it definitely was one of those things where like, okay, the first billboard got a lot of traction in the media. Let's get on board this while we still have this attention and do something with it. And like, yeah, it probably had some pretty decent results. Like there are a lot of people donated to the Ovira campaign. And I was like maybe less skeptical, especially because their logo isn't on those ones. So it doesn't feel self-serving. But it's just... There is something a bit icky about it. Yeah, I am completely certain that these are 100% sincere. I don't think there's some scheming mastermind trying to exploit a social movement or a political issue for profit and gain. But I think despite that, I do not like these people in these spaces and doing this sort of work. I don't like brand activism, even if it's potentially doing some positive things, because I think in the long term, I think it is negative. Because one thing that just irks me so much about these billboards, and I can't even really explain it, but it just, my immediate reaction, I think, was negatively clouded by this. It's just I hate how clean and corporate these billboards look. They look so modern. It's like the Helvetica font. Uh, Of course, you know what font it is. I'm assuming it's Helvetica. (laughs) It's something like that. I don't think it actually is. Sorry. Okay. Well, that's all right. It's the the sans serif cleans font uh, in the center uh, with this grade. It looks like an Apple iPhone. It's pretty. I could have made it on Canva. Yeah, it's pretty. And I think it just reflects this constant subsumption and just 
consuming of activism by brands. It's like a way to completely sanitize anything that has the potential of being radical so it can be sold and it can be easily traded. Mm. And then uh, news outlets will report on it. If they make something mm-hmm. gritty and actually a bit confronting and alienating to some people, I don't think it would have had the spread it would have. And maybe that's an argument for it that it wouldn't have the spread it would. But I don't know what the spread is actually serving. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it chose an issue that is gritty and it made it aesthetic for the purpose of, I guess, getting people to read about it and look at it and stuff, right? But I think you're right. Some would argue that it being more accessible in that regard and it not being alienating is a good thing because the more people will read it. But I also think, yeah, but you're not really going to actually challenge anyone with these ideas, are you? And I think with this Ovira thing, I don't know, they're kind of acting like this is a controversial topic and it's not. The majority of people think what happened was fucked. We don't need to convince anyone that that was fucked. The average person is like, yeah, this whole situation is terrible. That woman was victim blamed. There is no excuse for a guy to punch a random woman in the face on the street. Like, it's just, this is not okay. And even like conservatives are pretty open to admitting that that was not okay. Like the judge who said those things is a symbol of the institution, but not a symbol of like the public consciousness. And I do think that like maybe part of the reason that I'm just uninterested in this kind of advertising is because it's not challenging. You're not actually like challenging any ideas or any normativity even though it might seem that way because what you're saying is like angry and it like calls out this issue, but like we know. (laughs) Yeah, it seems just incredibly safe. Yes, it seems safe. That's exactly what I was trying to say. (laughs) Yeah, and just speaking about the aesthetic as well and the colors they use, they use like the brand colors and they use the brand Mm. typeface. It's it's not- It still feels like an ad. Yeah, it seems like a complete commodification and sanitization of something that actually could be radical, but it's just making it all wishy-washy. Well, at the end of the day, it's still about brand safety. And it's still about about a brand image at the end of the day, right? And I wanted to point out something that I find very interesting about how this story became as big as it did. So, Ovira sent out, like, press releases to media companies after the initial billboard. And then, obviously, all the media companies covered it because they read the press release. And they were like, wow, that's really cool. Because it is, like, it's interesting. It's like a statement. It's And also just not something we really see a lot in Sydney in particular as well. Like, there isn't a lot of public big messages that we get. So, it's like, yeah, this is cool. And then they reported it. But I really – and this is from my – This is from my experience as like a journalist who works in the media and news industry. I really wonder if Ovira created the conversation around this topic because that's how it's being reported, right? So if you search up Ovira in like Google News, you'll get all these headlines from like heaps of companies and news agencies that are saying things like, a women's startup creates much needed conversation around like domestic violence or Ovira sparks change. And like, it is really overwhelmingly positive headlines about the action that they've created, the conversation they've sparked. It's telling us how cool this is and it's telling us that everyone is fucking talking about it. And then obviously we look into it and we're like, wow, like this is so cool. But like, do do we create narratives and conversations or does the media tell us that it exists and then we're like, true, everyone must be talking about this because the news 
reported on it. And I want to say that because, like, this did come through a press release to media companies. It's not like all these journalists saw the billboard up and were like, that's fucking wild. Like, we got to report on that. This is, the people must hear this. Like, people, like, journalists would have received that press release in their email and then been like, that's pretty cool. And they would have covered it from a positive angle because it's an important topic. And, like, I probably would have too if I was covering it. I would have been like, this is so cool. They did this. But it's like, we see all these articles about it and we're like, wow, this must be a really big thing that everyone is talking about. But most of you like would have come across it in the article. So like, are we all talking about it or did the media tell us we're all talking about it? Yeah, to me, I mean, that's the most interesting thing around this because I think that's something that a lot of people uh, wouldn't know or wouldn't realize. You see an article about something or you see, you know, a dozen articles on every single outlet talk about something. You assume it's a legitimate thing and it's a big deal. And you assume that they're talking about it because everyone is talking about yeah, you talk, it. They're talking about it because it's a big deal and everybody is looking for coverage on it. What you don't realize is that they are precisely, this is whether, even if it is a legitimate activist activity, there is a, a PR person behind it that is creating a press release and sending it out to every single outlet. And then those outlets are pretty much sourcing this press release when writing this article. So really, and I'm not saying they did this. In fact, I'm certain they didn't. They could have just driven around a billboard for, you know, two minutes, taken the photos. And then even though this protest didn't take place in the real world, it takes place in the, in the realm of the media. It takes place in this symbolic realm. And that's where so much activism and brand activism takes place, not in the real world of material things, but in this symbolic mediated world, because that world is safe. That world doesn't actually challenge the material world. And that's why so many companies, not that this is anti-capitalism, but, you know, the sentiment of this is is feminist and radical. Uh, That's why so many brands take these radical ideas, but only really express them and play with them in the symbolic sphere, because you can sort of deploy these ideas without actually threatening the base, which is where actual change is going to happen, right? Yeah, and I think I do want to point out that we don't think Ovira is insincere. No, I, I really I am don't. certain they are. I've been reading like the quotes and the um, interviews with the like CEO of Ovira and I believe her. Like she really does care about this issue and she's trying to do something about it. But I think it's not really about her or any individuals. This is about the way that brands necessarily must function. And it's the way that like brands necessarily have to muzzle activism it's it's very rare that you can get like a genuinely radical or like kind of game changing activism and also maintain and keep a brand image um and a safe audience like it's hard to have both of those at once especially under capitalism because in order to have a functioning brand you have to work with not against capitalism yeah uh, and just like we said before if you look at these billboards in real life they don't make sense Right, like you don't know what they're about. The billboard was made to be turned into an article. Mm -hmm. That's the point of the billboard. The billboard doesn't make sense without the articles accompanying. Without the media, this would be a meaningless thing. Yeah, the the billboards aren't traveling saying we demand change here and this is what change looks like. Yeah, these are our demands. Yeah, it's as sort of sleek and modern as it possibly could have been. And as non-threatening as it possibly could have been. Exactly. And I think part of that is like the lack of alienation. And I think that's worth talking about because I think a lot of brands like to partake in activism without actually like 
challenging any institutions and without challenging their audience. With Ovira, who is a women's health startup, I think is how they describe themselves. Their audience is like progressive women. And I say women because like, it's interesting, like people who aren't women are still going to have periods and have these health issues, but it is very much geared. It's a woman's issue. It's very like they use the word woman quite specifically, which I find maybe interesting. But yes, this is a women's health issue. Their audience is predominantly women. It's progressive women and it's women who care about these issues. And it's just interesting because if we want to create radical change and if we want to challenge like misogynistic institutions, our conversation needs to extend outside of these groups because these people know I don't need to tell like most women that violence against women is bad. (laughs) I just... I don't know. I want to see, for me to really believe a lot of brand activism, I want to see it extend outside of their audience. And I want to see it extend towards conversations that are risks. I want to see them take risks, essentially. Yeah, like I believe the brand activism, you know, but that's that's the problem. Like, I think it's sincere, but I think because it's sincere, that's why I'm so skeptical of it. Because if it wasn't sincere, we could just easily criticize it. We could just dismiss it. But now because we have to take it seriously, it's like if activism can be done in this way by these sincere people, then we don't need to do it this other way. Yeah. But I don't believe that. Yeah, I think it's real. It's a similar conversation to white feminism even because a lot of white feminists like genuinely believe in the liberation of like some women or even think they believe in the liberation of all women. And it's like they're not bad people, but like we have to criticize their flaws because if we don't it will actively hinder like real feminism right like it's one of those examples with like brand activism even when it's sincere it's still worth being criticized not because I think that the person behind it is trying to fuck with anyone I'm sure that they believe what they're doing is right but I think it's worth criticizing because we're anti-capitalists and that that's how we look at everything and our core belief is radical activism and brand activism makes people think they don't have to partake in radical activism because this activism is apparently enough and it's not enough and it's never going to be enough and we have to like remember that at all times and like that's part of being critical i think this is very related to white feminism i think brand feminism and corporate feminism and girl bossification are all like kind of within the same realm even when they're sincere i was reading an article which I will link in the sources. And I found some very interesting quotes in them. So this article, the scholar behind it was interviewing like women who have feminist business or women in business who believe that they are feminists. So it refers to them as like self-proclaimed feminists who have businesses. And then the writer is essentially just interviewing these women and asking them like questions on like feminism and on their, the way they envision feminism and how that translates into their work and like business and feminism. And it's, it's honestly like really illuminating in like how they think. And actually, I think it really confirms some of the like just things Mitch and I have said in the past as well about like business feminism and just how much it fails, how much it's destined to fail and why we don't really like it. So I'm going to read you this quote now. The interviewees were very definite about their feminist position and stated that without their feminism, they wouldn't be a business. Sarah, who is one of the people being interviewed, says that no one but her could have come up with this idea since it grew out of her activism. She continues, it would not exist otherwise. Feminism is the idea. The business is this, stating that the business is feminism. Feminist engagement is thus expressed as a precondition for the business, but at the same time, feminism and business 
merge into one. I just, I love this quote because I think it really applies to the Ovira situation because Alice, who is the CEO of Ovira, has said in previous press releases and interviews when asked if it was appropriate for a brand to kind of co-opt this issue and talk about it, she said, well, if not us, then who? There's this idea that like these things, nobody else could have come up with these ideas. Nobody else could have done what we've done because it was our individual activism that created this. And I find it really interesting because there's the conflation of feminism and business and business as a means of practicing feminism, which is what essentially Ovira is, right? Like it's a startup that seeks to, I think their um, kind of whole thing is like we need to talk about women's pain. Women's pain is often ignored. And women's suffering in all forms. Yeah, like we need to end, which I find very interesting because when we talk about women's pain and suffering, like they specifically are talking about the pain and suffering of women who experience period pains and women who are like victims of rape and domestic violence, which is all like very valid pain, but it's also like very, it's very narrow definition of pain. Cause like, what about like the pain of like laborers that are women? What about like, if we looked at this from a Marxist lens, there are a lot of other types of pain that we could be talking about that aren't necessarily like physical abusive pain. I just find it interesting, right? It's not a critique that they're too narrow. It's just interesting that that is the angle that they've chosen and they believe that their business is a direct means of practicing feminism. And this person, Sarah, said that like, yeah, like she didn't like decide to make a business and then be like, I've made a business and I'm going to make it feminist. Like she started a form of activism and then it morphed into a business. But let me tell you what her activism is. Her activism, which ended up becoming a business, was that she was making T-shirts and like jewelry and other products with feminist slogans. She considered that activism. That's not activism. That's not activism. <laughs> and I just find it really interesting because it's that's very white feminist, right? The idea that symbols of activism are activism. There's like no understanding that those are two completely different things. She wanted t-shirts that said, I'm a feminist or like whatever. Like she wanted feminist merchandise. So she started making some for herself and then people were like, that's really cool. Like, where can I get that? And she was like, oh, I made it. And they were like, oh, okay. can, I, can I buy one off you? And then she started to make stuff and then it turned into a business. And she fully believes that that is her feminist calling. Like, this is her being a feminist and practicing feminism is making merchandise. And honestly, like, maybe slightly irrelevant, but I would really love a conversation with her. And like, so who makes your t-shirts? Where do you source your cotton from? <laughs> Who's, whose labor is this? Because you're not actively hand sewing these t-shirts. They're probably mass supplied online and then you print a label onto them. Like it's, you know what I mean? Like there's so, I mean, we've talked about this in our Girlboss episode, so I don't really need to get into it. But the point is, it's so interesting to me that she believes that the act of wearing a feminist t-shirt or of saying that she's a feminist is in and of itself activism. And I would argue that Ovira falls into a similar umbrella. What they're doing is obviously less symbolic than what she's doing because they are like fundraising and donating to things and like starting conversation. But at the same time, what do we define as activism? It seems that the word active in activism has just been completely dismissed yeah because like i mean and i have said this honestly countless times on the podcast but like i think we just don't know what the fuck activism is like i've been described as an activist previously in other people's like articles or like posts about me and i've had to pull it up many times because i'm not an activist like i'm not out there on the streets 
rallying these and creating these protests you know i'm not out there putting my body on the line against a state or institution like there are people out there like doing real activism i make a podcast i talk about important topics and i don't mean to undermine my work i think what mitch and i do is important and i think we create a difference and we change people's minds but i don't necessarily think that is a form of activism yeah i hope it creates the grounds for activism in the future yes but this isn't the activism exactly like i don't think what i do is the same as somebody that is organizing and emceeing a rally to stop black deaths in custody because i'm in my study <laughs> recording a podcast and they are out there on the front lines that's what i believe activism is like it's being out there on the front lines putting yourself out there to criticize openly these institutions like like extinction rebellion are like climate activists right because they go out there and they actually disrupt and they do things and i don't think me putting up an infographic on my instagram that i made on canva is activism and I won't pretend that it is. Yeah, because, I mean, going back to Sarah, the, the feminist business owner, it's not activism because it's purely symbolic. It's just she's creating discourse. and But that's the issue with white feminism. They believe right? that creating discourse is activism. Yeah, they think feminism is a social issue in terms of feminism is an issue of ideas. Sexism is when people think the wrong things about women, so we need to change people's minds. When it's more than just an idealistic issue, but it's a material issue. Feminism and inequality exists at a very material level in all of our institutions. And that's the difference. That's why we think feminism requires activism to disrupt material institutions and not just convincing people to not be sexist, which is essentially what these buttons and t-shirts are doing. Exactly. And I just think like this study is like, it's blowing my mind because I'm seeing in real time stuff that I guess I know these women think, but now I'm realizing is like very real. And I think that's, it's kind of explained back to me why I was just so irked by the whole Avira thing. Cause it's like, this is not activism. You are not an activist. You are a businesswoman who has created interesting and progressive discourse but at its heart, it's not activism. And let's let's not pretend that things like fundraising are the, and, phil- and like philanthropic work is activism. Because if donating money made you an activist and everybody is a fucking activist. But that's not what activism is. I actually have a second quote that kind of furthers what we're talking about from the same article. I'll read it to you now. Anne, another woman in the study, argues that showing it, quote unquote, and taking a visible stand in everyday life is actually more important than being engaged with a political community. She continues by describing her own feelings about wearing feminist commodities and says, I feel empowered by it. I can clearly display what I stand for. Once again, pointing to the importance of visibility. Veronica explains, it's become important to show that you identify as a feminist to take an active stand, not just talk about it, but to actively make your feminism visible. And I find that, again, exactly what this Ovira thing is about, this really white feminist idea, like where activism is visibility. And I find that really funny because to me, like you don't show me you're a feminist by just wearing clothes, just based on your actions, based on what you do. Like somebody is a feminist based on the personal change that they create and the conversations that they're having and the beliefs that they harbor, not because they wear a fucking feminist t-shirt. Like these women believe that their products that they are creating are more impactful and important than solidarity and real activism. I just like can't fucking believe that whoever this Anne person is said that, and I'm going to quote it again, taking a visible stand in everyday life by wearing, you know, these feminist t-shirts is more important, 
more important than being engaged with a political community. This shit is actively harmful to create change because we need solidarity and unity to create change. Like we need people to band together. We need like this oppressed class of people who are actually quite like they're not quote unquote minorities. It's fucking a lot of us. If we all actually like decided to take a stand together, we would create change, right? This is the basis of things like strikes and things like protests. And this is like the basis of a lot of anti-capitalist Marxist kind of ideas. It's the collective. And I just think like this, this, what these people are saying is white feminism. The idea that it's more important for me as an individual to just wear a t-shirt that says feminism and end my activism there. And that's more impactful than like joining a collective, like grassroots group that will actually like, it's politically engaged and will actually create change. This is the fucking problem. This is the problem with white feminism and with girl bossification and with brand activism. This idea that you as an individual should just donate to something and buy our feminist t-shirt and now you're, you're good. Here's your little feminist badge. You know, we've put your name in the little feminist list. You're done for the day. Like, it's so harmful because it just creates complacency. Like, the cognitive dissonance, man, to just be like, no, 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 it is more important that I buy a feminist t-shirt than it is for me to actually go to a feminist protest. Like, <sighs> the frustration, right? Like, you sh- I just read that and I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, you guys are just, like, taking the movement backwards. So what about some brand activism that doesn't give us, like, the ick completely? Um, does does it exist is it possible does it all just seem a bit repulsive to you like my initial response is yuck i can't think of any like brand activism that i ever don't hate but then like i really think about it and maybe there's like a couple there's like ben and jerry's ben and jerry's yeah is very interesting uh i think i became aware of sort of some of the activism they were doing and in some cases it is activism uh it's not purely like this symbolic discursive activity like in after the death of George Floyd, they put out, you know, a pretty scathing and in some ways alienating press release about dismantling white supremacy. And while I think that can be dismissed in the same way we have now, I think what makes that more effective and what makes me potentially more sympathetic uh, and positive on this is that it is alienating. It's not the safest possible thing. They took a risk to stand by their beliefs. That's why it means more. And while uh, I may be more inclined to buy Ben and Jerry's subliminally in the future because of it, I think it's not, it doesn't feel disingenuous sort of to its core. Yeah. Well, I guess the difference is maybe between like other brands like Pepsi and Starbucks and even Ovira is like Ben and Jerry is like, fucking took a risk and basically alienated half their audience and half their consumers. But they were like, I don't give a fuck. Like y'all should be anti-white supremacy. And if you're not, then don't fucking buy our products and we hate you. <laughs> like, good. Like, I mean, that's probably as good as it probably gets in brand activism. It's like to like, especially because Ben and Jerry's are known for using radical language. Like even saying white supremacy, especially in Australia, like, I mean, Ben and Jerry's is American, but in Australia, no one says the word white supremacy. It's a dirty word. It's like the R word, aka racism. (laughs) Like it's more offensive to accuse something of being white supremacist or racist than to be white supremacist or racist in Australia. And while America has like a far more radical population, it also has a far more right wing population. It's more polarized. But like Ben and Jerry's actively deciding to use the words white supremacy and to call it call out white supremacy for being white supremacy. Like they're not beating around the bush here. They're like, yeah, this is white supremacy. Like he fucking like George Floyd was murdered by a white cop. And this whole thing is built on white supremacy 
It's true and like kind of radical and just not something you we expect of brands, I guess. Like my standards are extremely low. And when I saw that, and they've said other really um, great stuff about other issues as well, that like they're generally pretty, like, they're quite true to themselves, I think, with some media messaging when it comes to issues. And I don't want to be like, okay, this is perfect activism. And Everyone go out and buy Ben yeah, & Jerry's. Because it's not that. It's not that way. And also, quite frankly, I never buy Ben & Jerry's because they're too expensive. <laughs> but it's just like, yeah, this is an example of brand activism that doesn't give me the ick. It's brand activism that I kind of am willing to let off the hook a little bit because at least it seems genuine. Yeah, another example, at least in terms of Australia, that I liked when I saw it was a lot of what Lush does, especially around uh, Invasion Day, that they'll, I think maybe a couple of years back, I remember seeing in their store or on the screens uh, work from, you know, First Nations artists about like, this is stolen land, Invasion Day, et cetera, et cetera, which I think, again... I mean, firstly, in Australia, that is very polarizing and alienating. And also, I'm for brands, like, potentially sabotaging themselves. Mm. Because, again, the people who operate these brands, a lot of them are soulless, but some of them are actually, you know, well, I mean, they're all real people. But I'm saying there's actually real people behind this. And sometimes they actually believe things and they think that they can use their brand for positive change. And that's sometimes true. And I can respect it when they take it further than they necessarily have to. Mm -hmm. But I think we just have to be always skeptical and interrogate these sort of activities. Yeah, like with Ben and Jerry's, like they didn't have to go that hard. Like they could have put out a pretty like standard, we condemn this behavior, it is evil, racism must stop. And like it would have been fine, but they chose to maybe go a little bit harder and like take a risk in alienating half the audience because that's what they believe. That's the message they want to get out there. And even with Lush, and look, I do want to say that we're not saying Lush as a company as a whole is like a great ethical company because they recently had that controversy where they were underpaying like most of their staff. Yeah. But we're more talking about when it comes to activism because like it's not like the CEO has decided to do this activism. There is like a PR department. There's a group of people that have been tasked with taking up a social issue for the sake of the brand or whatever. And those people are like actually trying to do something good in circumstances that are very limiting. And those people tried to do something legitimately good. And like, you know, with the Lush uh, Invasion Day kind of campaign, they could have just been like, yeah, no, we don't support Australia Day. But they've gone out and they've commissioned Indigenous artists and they've like amplified the voices of the people that they apparently speak for. And actually, I'm going to go on a really slight tangent because that reminds me. Another quote from like the Ovira articles that I was reading was that like the Ovira like CEOs and stuff are talking about how they want to be the voice for the voiceless. And I've always hated, (laughs) I've always hated that like term of like, I want to speak for these women or I want to speak for the voices because no one is fucking voiceless. Y'all just don't listen, right? Like a much better angle. And this is a white feminist issue. I think this is something that irks me in particular as a woman of color and as a Muslim woman of color, because I'm very used to white women referring to me and women like me as voiceless or platformless or like no one is speaking for us and they must speak for us. And it's like, we don't need anyone to speak for us. We just need you to listen. So I get like, I get irked immediately. It doesn't matter who says Oh, we're the voice of the voiceless. That will always irritate me. But the Ovira thing was interesting because it's like, who is the voiceless? There is no shortage of women talking about this issue. You are not creating a voice for somebody. 
And that's the same thing with like a lot of companies where they'll be like, we've taken this issue on and we are going to champion it and we're the voice for this issue. And it's like nobody is the fucking authority on any issue and especially not when you're a brand. And that's why I like things like maybe Lush, you know, really making the effort to amplify voices of oppressed people that they are championing the issue of. Like it's not centering themselves. I'm more inclined to believe brand activism when it doesn't actually center the brand. And I feel like with Avira, for example, and maybe part of the reason it gave me the ick is because it centers its brand as like a key part of this campaign when it shouldn't. Like I haven't seen any quotes in any of these Avira articles from like actual women that are like known for advocating for abuses they've experienced, you know? It doesn't feel like it's amplifying the oppressed. It just feels like it's centering their brand. So I think at the end of the day, like the people behind these campaigns, be it in Ovira or Lush or Ben and Jerry's or wherever, like I don't think they mean badly. I don't think they're like genuinely being problematic. I think they believe what they're trying to do. But I think we as anti-capitalists who are so fucking tired of seeing issues be co-opted and muzzled in particular, I'm exhausted by that shit and I want to be critical of it at all times. And I think it's good for people to be critical of brand activism, even when it's fundraising money and doing really big things because we should always be radical and it's really easy to lose that radicalness in like corporate activism. And to quote a book that I recently came across, which I love the title of, uh, it is the revolution will not be funded. And that doesn't mean that we can't endorse or be happy with certain brand activism or, or nonprofit activism when it takes place, but the revolution will not be enacted through these channels. So just, you know, always be skeptical. When push comes to shove, Avira and every other company is not going to be pro-revolution because it'll threaten their profits as a business. So always remember that. Cool. Well, thanks for listening. I think now's a good time to talk about our sponsors for the episode, which is you, our lovely, lovely listeners. Specifically, we'd like to thank Sarah Wallace, Kieran, Pia, Sarah Calcano, Liz, Belle, and Katie. So thank you so, so much. If you thought our discussion today was interesting or thought-provoking or something you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Saliha. And if signing up isn't your thing, you can also donate to our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. Both the PayPal and Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Saliha Official and give me a follow if you liked today's episode. And follow my Instagram at mitches.miscellanea for discussions around film, books, and music. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me or Mitch on Instagram and you can email us at here's the thing though podcast at gmail.com and please include your name, pronouns, and any other important info. Cool. Thanks. Bye. Bye.